Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to another episode of Coral Chihuahua. Second inversion chords. Second inversion chords. What are we talking about this week, Eamon? We're in the same room again, which is nice. Ah, yes, we are uh, in the same room. Uh, we're in York once again, and this week we're going to be talking about two new recordings, uh, new releases, one from The Sixteen and one from E. Fagellini. Robert, tell us about that. Yeah, I've got Will Be. Uh, if you, you know, the great English madrigalists, Will Be, Thomas Wilkes, uh, John Ward, those three, a bit like the West Indian cricketers of the 1950s, the three W's they were known as, Clive Walcott, Frank Worrell and Everton Weeks. I wonder whether Everton Weeks was related to Thomas Wilkes. James Weeks, the conductor of Exaudi, he claims to be related to Thomas Wilkes. No. Yeah, no, no, that's what he says. But who, who knows with James? <laughs> anyway, um, we're going we're gonna to play a track straight away from our new CD called John Wilby. Madrigals, just checking. No, it's, called, it's called Draw on Sweet Night. And it's the best of his only two books of Madrigals. Um, and this is a piece called Oh Wretched Man. Thank you. 
John Wilby's O Wretched Man, published 1609. The singers there, Grace Davidson, Rebecca Lee, Martha McLaurin, Nicholas Mulroy, Greg Skidmore and Charles Gibbs. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? Serious music, I think. Yeah, it's quite in, it's quite intense. I think the thing about English magicals is that we, we tend to remember all the light ones, the sort of frothy ones. Oh, it's the month of May. Hey, that sort of thing. And... Uh, I suppose that is, that is a reasonable proportion of them. You know, these are music. This is music for pleasure to be sung for pleasure. Uh, at the time where printing was belatedly in English in, in England, music printing was starting to have an effect and get into the homes of uh, of people. But um, it's the plangency and that major minor dissonance and chords you're not quite expecting. For example, on those words, have their discontent without any preparation of the dissonance. And this technically is something that's very important at the time. He goes, and you just can't do that. But it's on the word have their discontents. So I think that that plangency, that sort of, it's got bird and talus in it, but it's also got some Italian colours as well. Yeah, very much so. And uh, interesting to note that discontent, uh, I think, is always a major chord that we it comes out on a major chord each time. Gosh, well, that's that's something that will be does. Uh, that's a Monteverdi thing as well. That you write a lot of your music in the 16th century in the Dorian mode. But if you want something harsh, you go into the major key. There's a lovely Monteverdi magical that uh, has been moaning. You know, Guarini, the poet, is moaning for about five or six minutes, and then when he says. Questa empio amor miseria estrema. This a wicked love was that was the, the extreme of misery. And he goes. I'm just going to lean across to the piano. He, he does this. He goes into. It sounds like Stanford. So he's associating harshness. With major, and you still get that in French musical theory, where ma- they call major uh, a major key dur, like duro, harsh, and, and minor mol for soft. There's a great uh, just listening to that. A wonderful the way the singers use the diphthongs on world and loathe. There's a real unanimity of approach there. It's it's something I'm slightly obsessed with. I know you are a bit Andrew Carwood as well. It's we we tend to suppress them or. In Northern European singing, I can speak not for Northern Americans, but there is this pushing of the diphthong to the end of the note. Um, but but diphthongs are one of the great glories of Eng- of English. We should tell the uh, should tell the um, the Anthony Rooley story, director of the Consort of Music. He was giving a lecture in Texas once with Emma Kirkby, a lecture recital, and um, and he started talking about the colour of diphthongs. And a man put his hand up. A man in my my imagination with a 10-gallon hat, said, Mr. Rooley Wadden Gould's name is a diphthong. <laughs> Apologies to, te- to Texas listeners. So such such colours there. And, and we'll be not one of the great London um, uh, singing people of, and, and composers of the 1590s, 1600s. He spent a lot of his time at Hengrave Hall uh, near Bury St. Edmunds. Uh, and eventually gave it all up. He was given a, sh- a quite a lucrative sheep farm, <laughs> but but in his in his young days he was in he would pop he would go to London with the uh, with the the family from Hengrave Hall the Kitsons and they had a house on Austin Friars or Augustin Friars which is now pretty much where the Bank of um, the Bank of England is, but he does he does seem to have taken part in uh, the the Gentlemen's Singing Club put together by Nicholas Young. 
1588 published the famous volume Musica Transalpine, the music from across the Alps, um, bringing Italian madrigals, Englished, we were never very good at foreign languages, Englished, so that English people could could could, uh, could sing these things, and they were published, and you could get to know the the singing fraternity, and you would you would buy music, printed music at the same time. So that was clearly a sort of a uh, very stimulating thing for him. But there is this this mix of English and Italian. I think that's that's what I love about the pieces so much. And this is this is domestic music. You talked about the printed music getting into people's houses and into their homes. So this would have been not just sung round a table. Is it? Well, that's that's the thought. And uh, sales figures, as far as as far as we know, uh, seem to suggest that's the case. You have to be a little bit careful with um, what Thomas Morley says. Thomas Morley's book, A Plain and Easy Introduction to Practical Music. The two things you need to know about that book is it's neither plain nor easy <laughs> to understand. Some quite complicated theory in it. He suggests in the foreword that um, uh, that a friend of his, or, or maybe it's the, the main character in the, the book, I can't remember because it's done in the form of a dialogue, that was at um, uh, was at a dinner party and dinner being finished, the, the plates were put away and the part books were brought out and he was given one. And when, compla- when, when saying to his mistress that he couldn't read music, she, she wondered how he was brought up. Now that's good flyleaf material to encourage you to buy a book on music theory or on, on music composition. Um, but certainly... In, uh, I mean, we had a big problem in this country with um, uh, with monopolies. Bird and Talis had the monopoly. It's always quoted, isn't it? 1575, wonderful thing. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Bird was quite stingy with it. And it really, um, like any monopoly, it slowed down music printing. And it was only in the 1590s with Thomas East um, working with Bird and, and Morley and others that music started to flow off the presses in a way it had been in continental Europe since the 1530s. You mentioned there that about that moment uh, that sounded like Stanford. Mm-hmm. It's quite a nice little link uh, into the second release that we're going to be discussing today, which is uh, from the 16, uh, and it's a recording of Hubert Parry's Songs of Farewell, which formed the centrepiece of this year's Choral Pilgrimage, the annual tour that the 16 undertakes uh, around the churches and cathedrals uh, of Great Britain. And Stanford, it was actually after hearing Stanford's three Latin motets uh, that Parry was inspired to write a set of his own. He was uh, a huge um, devotee of Brahms's music and had long wanted to write uh, a set of motets which he felt would uh, sort of complement you know, many of the motets that Brahms had written. And he was commissioned uh, to write uh, a motet for a service marking the anniversary of Queen Victoria's death. Um, to be held at the the Royal Mausoleum in Frogmore on January 22nd in 1907. Um, And he wrote a version of of the third of the set, There is an Old Belief, Um, and then heard these Stanford motets. And it was after that that he decided that he wanted to write a set of his own and composed the first four of that set. Now, I think most people will know the one that you're going to play. I remember singing it as a boy at Chorister at Hereford Cathedral. Um, But I think Harry says in the in the notes to this CD that he didn't know the rest of the set. I think I've sung it once with the Finzi singers in a uh, in a Musée d'Orsay at some point back in the 90s, but uh, they're not all well known because they're, they're slightly monstrous, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. I think the first four are probably uh, better known, um, but the last two, uh, At the Round Earth's Imagined Corners and uh, Lord Let Me Know Mine End, are absolutely epic. I mean, they're symphonic, in not just in scale, uh, 
at the round earth's imagined corners is about eight eight and a half minutes mm. and lord let me know my end is 12 minutes which mm. is you know that's a substantial piece it's of music longer than they like playing on radio three for choral music have you noticed that <laughs> yes four minutes is your lot isn't it yeah. yeah um but so i think you know i think those are performed less frequently but i mean they're also you know they 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 offer significant challenges uh, to the performers and um, can you read us a bit of this, this first poem Yes, the first motet is a setting of a poem by Henry Vaughan, My Soul, There is a Country. My soul, there is a country far beyond the stars, where stands a winged sentry, all skilful in the wars. There, above noise and danger, sweet peace sits crowned with smiles, and one, born in a manger, commands the beauteous files.
My Soul, There is a Country by Hubert Parry, performed by The Sixteen, conducted by Harry Christophers. There's something, isn't there, about listening to a piece you know, sung by an absolutely top choir in a lovely acoustic. Uh, Where was that recorded? That was in All Hallows Gospel Oak. Just south of Hampstead Heath, yes. Uh, Hoping the trains don't go by on that particular uh, take. That's the thing, isn't it? Producers sit there now with apps, Skyscanner apps, knowing when the next plane is coming over. So you've got one minute before the next plane comes. I wonder whether they do that with the trains. They're not so... uh, not so reliable. So what's what's the metronome mark? Or what's the... At the beginning, what does he say for He that? just marks it slow at the beginning. He does give it a metronome marking. Uh, 64, crotchet equals 64. Mm. But of course, you know, metronome markings are kind of meaningless. It depends on the building you're in. depends on yeah, the number of completely. singers. And Harry likes a bit of slow, doesn't he? He does. He does slow very well. Um, but that's... You know, there's only 18 singers on this uh, on this recording. So, you know... Every- let's just... Let's just register that because that's fine for that piece yeah but when you're going to get into eight voice music 18 with the with the span of those later pieces that's going to be quite something mm-hmm. you mentioned that writing these was quite a long-term project for him does that mean he was writing them during the first world war as well yes i believe so so i think the first four were completed by about 1915 uh, and in fact they were performed by a smallish choir uh, at the royal college of music and it was after this that Parry decided to add, add a further two. But I think he, he was very uh, deeply affected by the war um, and news, particularly of his pupils, um, as in his role as a composition tutor at, at the Royal College, pupils of his uh, either being killed or, or seriously wounded in the war. George Butterworth, uh, one mm-hmm. of the great losses to, to mm-hmm. English music, Ivor Gurney uh, being gassed and invalided uh, back to the UK. Um you know this this affected him greatly, but he was encouraged by Herbert Howells, who who didn't go and fight in in the World War because of uh, uh, health conditions that he had, um, and Howells was encouraging him to to write, to, you know, to enlarge the set, and he wanted him to set uh, Walter Raleigh's poem, even such his time, um, but it was uh, he decided to use uh, at the Round Earth's Imagined Corners, which we'll we'll hear and talk about in due course. Yeah, when you're thinking of, of a cappella span howells is the the one who comes to mind not not in style because howells really had his own style but that that i've been seeing the summer is coming recently and that's a that's a, a big piece i mean it's it's seven seven or eight minutes long of acapella it's got a similar sort of span to it yeah of course the piece that springs to mind when you think about howells is uh take him earth for cherishing the motet that he wrote uh for the memorial service uh of john f kennedy uh, and coincidentally, that piece is also going to be in this year's uh, choral pilgrimage program. So there's there's some big repertoire for us to get through. And I think the challenge for any choir, if you're performing the songs of farewell uh, and let's say the howls as well, is what you put alongside it, because it can be a rather overwhelmingly rich diet if there's too much of this type of music. And Harry, with his customary excellent programming, has put alongside the parry uh, three settings by Thomas Campion, including a setting of the same text, Never Weather Beaten Sail, uh, and some medieval carols, uh, which explore patriotic ceremony. So we've got a great range of uh, sort of choral texture, uh, and I think that's it's a great way to offset the, the sort of magnitude and the opulent nature of, uh, of the parry by having something which is much more stark. And just for vocal managing as you're doing it in the the tour as well as on the CD, I think. Yes, quite, quite. And there's a bit of percussion thrown in as well. (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) Singers playing percussion. Uh, There's a subject. Uh, It's not you again, is it? It's not me this time. I have seen you play percussion in York Minster, I think. Uh, Is that right? (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, I'm just going to shout out here for the administrators because we blithely say words like a tour. The amount of administration involved in dealing with goodness knows how many cathedrals and large churches to make something like this happen. And the sheer singer availability, you know, it's worth saying that singers don't live in boxes. They sing for lots of other groups um, and trying to manage a tour like this around everything they do. It's it's really quite something. And hey, while we're at this end of um, lockdowns and pandemics and things, a shout out to administrators uh, for what they went through because of course they'd done all their work by the time the um, the concerts came up that were cancelled and then weren't paid for them it's been a really difficult time for yep. them as well big thanks to them yeah and um, we're going to go back to Wilby now and I suppose something that that you would think uh, is much more of sort of the sort of frothy English magical that, that we all tend to associate with that this is Sweet Honey Sucking Bees one of the most famous of Wilby's magicals but actually one of the most uh, tricky to sing because if you look if you look at the um uh, the pitch of it. So two soprano parts and then two, are they alto parts or tenor mm-hmm. parts? They're very, very high B flats written. Um, and then if you think, well, hang on, um, according to latest research on, on this, um, pitch, Tudor pitch at this time was three quarters of a tone higher than it is now. Obviously, it wouldn't be the same the whole way around the country. And, you know, the, 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 what your lute or your keyboard was tuned to at home wouldn't be the same as what it was in the Tower of London or whatever. But there does seem to be good evidence for thinking that, that is a pitch, um, the, the st- uh, some sort of pitch standard. You think, well, how on earth is this manageable? Um, and then you see that actually the piece is written with a certain clef configuration that means it would have been sung down a fourth. Now, this may be familiar to people from listening to the end of the Monteverdi Vespers, the Allowed Jerusalem and the Magnificat, which need to be performed down a fourth to, to match the vocal range of the rest of them. Not everyone does it, not everyone likes it, doesn't fit their their views. So we've recorded Sweet Honey Second Bees down a minor third, which is about the same thing after you stuck it up and, and then down. Um, so we have a soprano mezzo, two tenors um, and a bass. And the text is Sweet Honey Second Bees, why do you still surf it on roses, pinks and violets as if the choicest nectar lay in them? Ah, make your flight to Melisuavia's lips. Melisuavia, a contraction of two words for honey and sweet. There may you revel in Ambrosian cheer. Yet Swede. <laughs> not, <laughs> not, yet Swede. Not, not Swede, definitely sweet. Um, root vegetable magical. Yet sweet, take heed. Um, sting not her soft lips, for if one flaming dart come from her eye, was never dart so sharp, ah, then you die. And, and here again, you get Wilby going into the major key, maybe because the never dart so sharp, that's, that's part of it. But he does like a little bit of major at the end of a minor key piece, the same in Adieu Sweet Amaryllis. Here we go. Thank you. 
nice stiff thong. Rebecca Lee, Martha McLaurin and Nicholas Mulroy, Matthew Long and Charles Gibbs in John Wilbur's Sweet Honey Sucking Bees in its second part, Yet Sweet, Take Heed. Exactly what you said earlier about a piece that you know. I mean, that's a piece that I, I mean, I haven't sung it for many years now, but, you know, it's one that I have sung. It really sounds like I'm, it really feels like I'm hearing it afresh, uh, sung by a, a group of singers who are really, really into the, into the poetry and singing absolutely as one. Yeah, I mean, Peter Phillips used to, Peter Phillips of the Talis Scholars used to moan about English magicals. He used to, I remember appearing on a radio programme once about when we released uh, Tramps of Oriana and he said, you know, I have absolutely no interest in what people did in darkened rooms in 1603. Um, uh, but he did make the point that actually when the composer has some really good text to respond to, then the, then things change. And it's not as if that particular poem is terribly you know, profound. It's It's frothy. Um, but Wilby finds things in it that make it interesting, and, and that that bass was never dart so sharp. It twists the harmony at the moment and takes you where you're not expecting to go. They're very very pleasurable to sing, but I think the surprise with a, with a disc of twenty five of them and some um, some quite substantial ones as well, the second halves, is is the subtlety, uh, the pleasure, the plangency, as I said before. And I hope that you know, in the first complete recording of Will Be Madrigal since the 1980s. This will encourage people to sing madrigals again because madrigals, English madrigals, certainly are wildly out of fashion. Yeah, and I think that's a shame because it's good music. You know, I mean, we're, you know, you're, you're preaching to the converted here, but uh, it would be great to hear more of them. You mentioned there, or we mentioned earlier, about um, the acoustic that we recorded the parry in, which was mm. uh, All Hallows Gospel Oak, which is a wonderful... Uh, resonant building, I think really suitable for, for music like the Parry. You've gone for a, what feels like a more domestic uh, recorded sound there. Yeah, it's a hall. It's a hall, uh, the Wathen Hall at St Paul's School in Barnes. Is that the school where um, Gustav Holst worked? It was, I think. Yes, yeah. right, on the, uh, right on the Thames by Hammersmith Bridge. Uh, nicely dry. We've done nothing to the sound. It's, uh, you know, putting these in a, in a sort of bathroom acoustic would sound right, but it wouldn't wouldn't reflect um, the sort of acoustics they would have been made in. I remember when the Consul of Music used to do this and a lot of Monteverdi, they'd record in Ford Abbey down in Somerset. Similar sort of dry, woody sort of feel to it. Hmm. Um, and... It just yeah, you can make you can make honest music in that sort of thing. I like to do a lot of rehearsal in quite dry rooms, so it's really analytic, analytical sort of um, uh, atmosphere to work in. But actually, that's that's ended up as the right sort of thing. I like the clarity that it brings. Uh, you it can really there's nothing obscured. Exactly yeah, and that. you you can really do text. And actually, that was that was the one real thing throughout this that it's it's easy just to sing in your own language. I remember it was. And when I was at Oxford, Boyan Buich making this point about Italian madrigals, that he thought some of the Netherlanders, Rore, Willart, actually wrote more profound settings than Italian composers because they had to struggle with the language, whereas mm. he thought for the Italians it was just too easy. Um, and, and, and we really made a feature of just trying to, to explain in our singing the text. I think the first step on expressive singing is understanding the poetry yourself and the second step is trying to explain them and, and Roderick Williams gosh we keep mentioning him says you should sing to a six-year-old and I say to my students here at the University of York imagine a, a six-year-old who is one meter away from an xbox mm. and you have to tell stories and, and keep them so engaged um, and, but there's also an enormous pleasure in some of the sounds of these words as well um, uh, you know it's, it's singing 
late Tudor, early Jacobean English feels great in the mouth. Oh, yeah. Melosuavia. Melosuavia's lips. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, if I were to ask you, when you think of Parry, name the first piece of music by him that comes to mind. Uh, I was glad. Okay. Yeah, good. Or Jerusalem, for Jerusalem, example. Yeah. Or Blessed Pair of Sirens. Or Blessed Pair of Wife Runs, as my old music teacher at school used to call it. Why? I don't know. It's just, it was just, <laughs> it's just his way. Okay. Tim Harrison, if you're listening, there's a little shout out to you there. But I've always thought that he was very much a, you know, an establishment figure. I mean, you think of him yeah. you know, writing these coronation pieces. Um, let's just go back a little bit. So he was professor of composition at the Royal College of Music, uh, or a composition tutor, I should say, at the Royal College of Music. And then he later became the principal, the head of the Royal College of Music, while concurrently also being professor of music at Oxford as well for Blimey. about eight years. Blimey. I mean, that's quite some stint. Gives you an idea also of the sort of scope of his influence. And we, we mentioned uh, George Butterworth and Ivor Gurney as being two of his pupils, but an awful lot of people would have been through his stable. And that, uh, that really you know, cements him as establishment figure. Exactly. Uh, although he wasn't massively uh, fashionable, even in his own time. Uh, Delius uh, was among, among those who was dismissive of his talents. Um Although Stamford uh, thought he was the best English composer since Purcell, uh, which again is is quite uh, you know quite a claim. Is is Stamford just thinking Royal College now? Was it Stanford who said of Howells? He was giving. I think Paul Spice told me this. He was looking. He, he said, "Come over here," because Royal College right next to the Royal Albert Hall. And said, "What do you, what do you see when you see the Royal Albert Hall? What a big building. Yeah, but what else? Lots of windows. Yeah, just what your music hasn't got." <laughs> Which is fair with Howells. There's a good story about Ivor Gurney uh, being taught by um, by Stanford. Stanford said that Gurney was the most talented of his pupils, but also the least teachable. Uh, Gurney brought him a song in one day. And Stanford, of course, was this revered figure. And uh, he showed Stanford the song and Stanford looked at it and made some suggestions and little amendments on the score. And Gurney just turned around to him and said, look, now you've jiggered the whole thing. <laughs> Uh, which, of course, is quite you know an outspoken thing to say to your uh, esteemed professor at the time. Um, but anyway, just going back to Parry, I was surprised to, to read a quote uh, by his daughter where she said, My father was the most naturally unconventional man I have known, a radical with a very strong bias against conservatism, a free thinker, uh, and his friends were mostly uh, from the artistic and literary world. You know, that... That's just not who you think. That's not who I think the Parry no. is. But then I suppose that that can be true of any composer that one knows through a very few pieces, mm. and if a few pieces get performed all the time, I mean, I don't know any of his symphonies. Do you, do you know that well? I, I don't. You know, but of course, you're absolutely right to mention those five symphonies that he wrote. Uh, and I think of him. I know him through his choral works. But he wrote, uh, you know, an awful lot of oratorios as well. There's chamber music. Uh, I think there was even an opera uh, at one point. Um, so. There's much more to him than uh, than meets the eye. Of course, he's not viewed as a fashionable composer nowadays either. No, that's true. Now, my, my memory of singing these pieces was of a sort of exponential curve. You know, we got through the first four. That was great. They seemed to be moving from four to five uh, voices and then to six. But then then they just got bigger and bigger and vocally a real ask. What, what are we going to hear next? Well, we're going to hear... At the Round Earth's Imagine Corners, and you're absolutely right that the first two motets uh, are just in four parts. Thereafter, he adds uh, a one voice with each uh, with each motet, uh, and so they're getting larger in texture, but also longer in length as well. This is a setting of a poem by John Donne, um, and 
it has this extraordinary fanfare at the beginning, Blow Thy Trumpets, which sounds like it should be quite sort of upbeat uh, and celebratory. Mm. But again, he marks it slow at the beginning. And while one's sort of natural inclination might be to move the music forward, have a listen to this and see how Harry keeps the sort of stately nature of it. Can you just read us a little bit of the poem as well? Yeah, of course. At the round earth's imagined corners, blow your trumpets, angels, and arise from death, you numberless infinities of souls, and to your scattered bodies go.
at the Round Earth's Imagined Corners from Parry's Songs of Farewell, with 16 conducted by Harry Christophers. And actually both these um, new albums are released on Coro, the 16's label, the Fagellini one as well. That's quite something, isn't it? I was looking at the score as we were listening to that. Um, and it's easy to bandy around words like symphonic, but although you know ev- everything that he writes has a sort of textual basis for it, he's taking his time. I can see the inspiration from Brahms. He's uh, I once tried to read a book about Brahms when I was at university called Brahms and the Principle of Continuing Variation. Was it something like that? And you can see Parry's just sometimes just working points musically and letting them repeat text again and again. It's it's not so much uh, a, a big uh, um, job for the singers to have to deal with because it's so uh, because it's seven voices, it's split like that. But just the phrases are long, long phrases, and and it goes on. It's uh, it's a it's a real challenge. But maybe that's one for some amateur choirs to look at. Interesting. There's one tenor part in that, so those choirs that are, that are pushed for tenors, you're still down to only one tenor in that piece. Yes, I did it with my chamber choir. Uh, not that long ago because like Harry uh, I knew some of the set but not all of them and I'm going to be conducting some of the performances in the year ahead so I wanted to make sure that I'd done them all beforehand so did a performance with my chamber choir the Thomas Tallis Society Um, and again it was it was the the feeling was you know people said oh yeah I I know these songs but actually you know when we sat down to work on them that uh, the last two in particular um, but that phrase of you, you numberless infinities, which is very, very complex and fiddly, took a long time, a lot of hard, careful, slow, detailed work mm. to really get that into the voices. Mm. But it really re- benefits uh, when we came to the performance. Shout out for Dan Collins singing that lovely alto line with, I think it was Martha McLaurin. Um, that was a very easy, in the best sense of the, uh, of the, of the word, uh, piece of singing. There's one more track to mention uh, that appears on uh, on this new recording uh, from the 16. Uh, it's called An Unexpected Shore, and it's by Cecilia McDowell. Um, and uh-huh. uh, it's her 70th birthday this year, um, or maybe it was last year, actually. Anyway, she's had her 70th birthday <laughs> recently uh, with, the, you know, with all the, the COVID shutdowns. I forget uh, when it was. But we're going to be speaking to her uh, on Choral Chihuahua in a few episodes' time. So if you like Cecilia's music, or indeed if you don't know it and would like to know some more about it, uh, keep following us and uh, we'll be speaking to Cecilia soon. And maybe this episode has encouraged one person to buy an actual CD from this recording. You've got the sleeve notes, you've got the lovely booklet of course the text and the translations to read as poetry I'm, I'm really holding on to this fact that these performances don't make sense unless you can really absorb the poetry as well music is more than just the noise it makes thanks for staying with us uh, we'll be back we hope in two weeks with another episode see you then all right have you pressed the bleeding recording button this time <laughs> hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know Cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain. I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or, if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks.